Hey, hi, hello, y'all. This is RB sneaking right past you to bring you another episode of Take the Last Bite, a show where we take Midwest nice, pack it into a to-go box, and drop it off on your doorstep so you can watch us from the window and grab it when we're finally gone. Our team is in full-on energy recuperation mode after an incredible week in Columbus, Ohio, after pulling off the 30th annual Midwest Bisexual, Lesbian, Gay, Transgender, Asexual College Conference, Mumble Talk for the Necessary Short. Today's episode captures some of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity team exactly 24 hours after the closing remarks at this year's conference as we reflect on our first Mumble Talks, the biggest takeaways from this year's event, and think big about what's ahead for Midwest queer and trans spaces with Mumble Talk as a template for the future. Picture this. You enter into a giant ballroom. There's tables laid out across the space. You're looking for registration, and between you and check-in is a sea of people with hair spanning every hue on the color wheel, incredible outfits and bold shoes. People are hugging and oogling over each other's backpack pins. There are so many attractive people with rad energy and eager eyes. It feels familiar and warm, even though you've only met the people you traveled with and you've never been here before. You're anxious, excited, overwhelmed, energized, and in awe of what's in front of you. That is a deeply oversimplified explanation of what it feels like to attend Mumble Talk for the first time. And each year after that still brings warmth, hominess, familiarity, a sense of belonging, and infinite possibility. And for 30 years, this space has been providing comfort, challenges, encouragement, education, connectivity, and empowerment to all who have gathered for a brief weekend, a short moment that packs a huge punch and lingers on your heart and mind for infinity. I can speak from personal experience that I wouldn't be the radical queer I am and I wouldn't have the invaluable chosen family I have today without this vital, life-saving space. Even if you've never attended the conference, if you're a Midwest queer, I would wager a guess you've been impacted by the residual effects of its influence on the region's sexual liberation and gender justice work. Thousands of Midwest queer and trans folks have traipsed through convention centers and college campuses for 30 years, engaging with mass movement concepts such as fat liberation, solidarity with Palestine, intersectional accessibility, and so much more. At this year's conference, we further emphasize the prevalence of rural and small community organizing, designing a queer future through media, activism as a tool for social justice, creating change on college campuses, and taking care of ourselves as a way to take care of others as key issues facing our communities. 30 years ago, when most of us at the Institute were discovering we had fingers and sucking on a bottle, there were young college students who knew that what was currently available for Midwest queer and trans folks was not enough, and they built something from the raw materials of hope aspiration and ideation to plant the seeds for what has become the largest gathering 
of queer and trans youth in this country. On today's episode, we honor that transformative moment when the original conference organizers came together to form this conference. We reminisce on the successes and learning curves of this year's gathering, and we think about what will manifest in the next 30 years. Join us as we project our own hopes and dreams onto the future for this episode of Take the Last Bite. Why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations? When it comes to dynamics around privilege and oppression and around identity, well-intentioned isn't actually good enough. And how far is too far to drive for a drag show? I don't know, we're in Duluth right now. I would straight up go to Nebraska, probably. <laughs> if you are not vibing or something's not right, or also like there's an irreparable rupture, you have absolutely every right to walk away. Definitely gonna talk about Midwest nice. And if that's if that's um, as real as it wants to think it is. Midwest nice is white aggression. That's what it is. All right, fam, let's get into it. So pretty much exactly 24 hours ago, we were wrapping up the closing remarks of the 30th annual conference. Uh, so we are gonna chit chat about Mumble Talk's past, present, and future as we are still buzzing from the conference high of this year's conference. So why don't we start off with just a round of introductions of who folks are, um, their relationship to the conference, um, and doing a throwback to one of your favorite memories, perhaps of your first time at Mumble Talk. I can start. Uh, my name is Danielle Kropfeld. I am the fundraising coordinator for the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity. Um, I first got involved with the conference in 2020. I was a student planner at Western Michigan University. Um, I guess my favorite memory uh, would be, I guess, of that first conference. Um, I'm sure this sentiment will be echoed uh, throughout this process, but um, just being in space with so many people who share my identity was amazing. Um, additionally, um, something I really enjoyed about the conference my first year uh, was seeing all the different sorts of programming that we had, the different workshops, things that I had never even thought of being workshops were available to people. And I think that was just one of the best parts of the conference for me. I'm Nick Faust. I'm the Institute's Director of Marketing and Communications. Uh, I haven't actually planned one of the Umble Tech conferences, so I'm probably one of the only members of our team who hasn't, but I did have um, a hand in our bid when Michigan State was bidding in 2011 to host it in 2013. Um, my first time at the conference, I had a very similar experience to Danielle. In fact, I almost felt a little bit overwhelmed because I could ha I had a hard time even imagining what it was like to be in community in physical space with that many queer and trans folks at the same time. I remember um, just seeing all of the hair and thinking how <laughs> fucking cool that was. Like blue, green, red, orange, yellow, every single color. Um, and just thinking I wanted to do that and then sadly going home and never actually making that a reality. But um, having something that, uh, like that to look forward to every time I'm back. There's still time. <laughs> I feel like Mobile Tech is 
better than like a trade show for people who style and color hair. Ooh, yes. I feel like it's just like more vibrant, more vivid. It's great. Mm-hmm. It's great. Um, my name is Justin Drinky. My pronouns are they, them. I'm the executive director of the Institute. For those of you who have listened to previous seasons, you've heard me before, and I'm back to talk again. Um, my first time at Mumble Talk was in 2011. Um, and besides the experience of taking a bus that looked like a literal tin can to get to the conference, um, it was the most transformative experience, like being in a space with I don't know, we probably had 1,800 other queer people in that space that year. And it was, for me, one of the first times that I understood that there could be queer community, you know, instead of being in a small rural space where, like, I was one of two, uh, it was being in a space where I was one of 1,800, 1,600, I don't know the numbers, but um, being able to, like, see all of those other possibilities was personally transformed. Um, so I'm still RB, and I still use they, them. Um, and my role with the, uh, the conference that I'm the director of programs with Institute, my first conference was in 2012 in Ames, Iowa, which is where I also met Justin, which is very significant, I think, to the origin story of the Institute, because... Here we still are. Um, I think thinking back to like my first conference, I feel like it was also my first year of like university because I transferred from community college. And when I moved to Kansas City, where I was a student and traveled to the Iowa conference in 2012, like it just seemed like the floodgates had opened um, already of having moved to Kansas City and then becoming part of the LGBTQ student group. and getting super involved. So suddenly my second semester of university where I'm finally out away from home, which was a very restrictive and like hateful place. And so it just seemed like I got put on the express lane for like queer emergence and queer community. So then going to the conference (laughs) was just like hyperspeed. And, you know, that was also the year that students from my university bid to host the conference because it was the only reason we would get funding to go to the conference. Um, And surprise, we brought the conference home to then do the two-year planning process. So, like, I think without, you know, all of the, all of the, like, involvement opportunities of going with that student group to the conference, you know, my entire college experience would have been drastically different because it would not have revolved around being then a student planner. Because the entire time I was at, the University of Missouri, Kansas City, it was planning this conference. Like my graduating year was also the same year that the conference happened. And Justin, didn't you you were you had graduated, hadn't you, by the time Yeah, yeah. Like, I'd been I'd been graduated for like eight months by the time yeah. I actually implemented <laughs> yes. the thing. So like doing your senior year of college while also like planning a conference is is a lot. Um, but I cannot imagine like my, like my conf- my college experience and my conference experience are like one and the same essentially because my my formative years of college were also doing this this giant um, giant space. So like, every I think everything for me 
in, in what I do now, whether it's with the Institute or whether it's my paid job or anything else I do, like stems from that first. So here we are several years later from 2011, 12, and 20. And there's been, you know, just a couple things that have happened since 20. Just a couple. Um, so, you know, like, like I said, we are fresh off of the 30th annual conference. We are currently hanging out in a hotel room in Columbus, Ohio, hired, but also inspired, I think, by what we saw this weekend in collaborating with some phenomenal student planners for this conference who gave us a lot of their perspective in episode one of the season. So if you haven't checked that out, go check that out. I love those students so but um, we wanted to chat too just about like from our perspective and just having been to so many of these conferences you know what were some of the big takeaways what were some of the highlights of what we experienced this weekend with content with our experiences I might put you on the spot Nick because you you cried this weekend like I was just like oh my god we'll get there ain't you (laughs) so so what what was so what was good this weekend, y'all? Besides so much, but what, what were some biggies? I think something I really want to speak about is um, sort of the uh, the part of the planning process that we were privy to with the students was um, really choosing programming and keynotes uh, that were relevant to current day issues that we're experiencing. Mm-hmm. I think um, having Skylar Baylor as a uh, trans athlete mm-hmm. with all of the anti-trans legislation that's happening now uh, was very uh, provocative to the attendees of the uh, conference. I think that's very valuable for folks who were able to see that keynote. Um, I think that's one of the things that really stood out to me that I was roaming the hallways and heard, oh, that keynote was so, I think there was a a line of people, you know, waiting for to talk to Skylar after the uh, the keynote that went for for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> just, I think that just proves how impactful that specific you know bit of programming was, and all the other programming that people were just so thrilled about. I think I personally was thrilled about as well. Uh, so that's something that I am really taking away from this year to bring to future years. Mm-hmm. And I was really um, struck by his eagerness to stick around and yeah. have that conversation with folks like uh he said in his keynote you know i I didn't when i was at harvard swimming this was skylar um i I didn't set out to be an activist i i sort of eschewed the the term activist because what i really wanted to do was swim um but you know through his work and through his life experience has come to adopt that label and seems to be um one of the best examples of folks that i see today of folks who really want to not only beef um, offer their their thoughts and perspective and help other people in their sense making of the world, um, but also that he was uh, just so eager to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like what a gem to have <laughs> Skyler um, and Amani and all of the workshop mm-hmm. presenters. Like the the content throughout the weekend, I think you know is. Obviously, it's the reason that folks come. One of the reasons that folks come. Sometimes they come just to have community, right? And I think that's the other piece that I saw this weekend, right? Is so many 
relationships being formed or rekindled or renewed um, throughout the weekend where like you connect with people who share similar identities with you, who fall under the same letter as you. And um, that, that relationship, you know, transcends state boundaries, right? So we're bringing folks together from across the region, you know, and just to see the relationships that form and the joy that is so visible on everyone's face Mm -hmm. when they are in this space, you know, is, is, is my biggest, I think, takeaway is, is seeing that joy, right? You know, I think, um, at the end of episode two, um, one of the speakers was talking about um, joy is the you know, antidote to despair, right? And we need more joy in order to continue building this movement work. And that's what I saw happen in this space this week. You know, I, I think we saw that too in a, in a way that we were both not sure of um, and also didn't didn't fully anticipate with the with the maker market Mm. um so like that that kind of came out of several very early on planning ideas of wanting to really promote art and creativity in a way and so you know a a couple thoughts kind of all funneled into well why don't we why don't we pilot a maker market and i think the tagline i'd given that was a your Etsy, but in person, and you know, it was, it was just really cool to see, like, a the vendors come in and just get so much traffic to their tables and get folks just fawning over their like shade creatures and their stickers and the books and the tarot cards, just like so much cool stuff. Um, but then also we we sprinkled into that the the um, what we call the creation stations. I'm clever. Uh, (laughs) um, But just like, it was so simple, like conceptually, but it was such high impact to see folks like gathering around a table to put together like little beaded friendship bracelets. Uh And like we had the community like mural banner thing that folks just like had no restrictions on what they could add. And, they took advantage of that and there's some, you know, NC 17 phrases on <laughs> some of that banner, but it was just, it was cool to have kind of these like community contributed kind of art craft pieces. Um, folks were really hype about being able to decorate their own swag bags. Uh-huh. Um, so I think just like, it was very like innocent, wholesome, wholesome, like programming, like mm-hmm. passive programming that folks could kind of choose their own adventure and do in an, in a time where obviously we're still rebounding from the thick of the pandemic that we're still in. But, uh, you know, what I've tracked is like folks' social batteries are just so n- not at the capacity that they used to be. And so offering something that folks could kind of interact with while still being in community but not have to interact with people in a way that might drain their energy i think was some was an element that i appreciate that we were able to incorporate and i think that to me highlights the importance of art in mm-hmm. movement work yes. right you know, I, 
it can't all just be sterile academic papers, right? Like we have what? to be centering art and creators yes. and musicians in, in our movement work. because That is, you know, a huge part of our community and like the experiences that we have together. Absolutely. And the art not only, oh gosh, I'm going to lose my train of thought here already as soon as I start talking. Uh, the, the art is not only a form of expression for the individual artist, but it is a way to help translate experience and emotion and relationship and understandings of our world around us that can impact other people, that can cause people to be inspired, that can inspire people to act on their campuses and their communities interpersonally with one another. Um, one other piece of art that I was really thrilled that we did this year was uh, we launched a commission. So we set out at the beginning, I think this might have even been a, 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 an idea that we co-created with the students, mm -hmm. but that had sort of been on our mind for a, a while as well. And that was to make sure that we were sort of putting our money where our mouth is um, in how much we value art. So this year we put out a call, um, a request for qualifications for queer Midwest artists who were going to design some key art for the conference. And ultimately, we uh, used that process to select the cover art for our program, but also had custom posters made, sort of like if you were to go to a show, um, whether it's in a, in a dive bar or you're just like favorite local venue <laughs> that serves lovely non-alcoholic beverages. <laughs> um, it, was, it was really cool to see people get excited about them at the table. Uh, you know, we gave them away for free because we felt like that was an important part of that public art piece in general, but also for appreciating their work and what it meant to them. Everyone kept asking me, can I have that? Are you sure I can yeah. have that for free? <laughs> I'm really glad. Yeah, we have to do that next year. Absolutely. Um, I think, too, uh, launching the tracks this year, I know that was something that I know you wanted, you know, we're, we're wanting to chat about, too, but, like, you know, we, over the years, like, there's definitely a certain, like, common tropes and themes in the workshop submissions we get and the kind of, just by nature of being a conference where college students and those who support them come, like, we, we, we see certain, like, through lines with the content, but this year, taking a step further and kind of identifying what some of those streamlined content packages are, if you will. Um, I think was a really wise move to a kind of showcase like what we prioritize, like what are some of the thematic elements such as rural and small community organizing, um, design and media work, um, you know, doing the work on college campuses, obviously is such a, a huge life force at this conference. Um, and then also then having through some of our like existing relationships with other educators and advocates to uh, kind of pull together additional tracks. Um, and I think it was really important this year to have two folks who specifically do extensive work for trans women and femmes of color to bring um, a, a track that explicitly centers and prioritizes those narratives um, and then also being led by two trans women of color, uh, Barik and Jade. Uh, the, the phrase that Barik kept using that I think I really appreciate and also offers, you know, a challenge and some room for growth here is that the, the sessions that were part of that track called The Dolls Are Thriving 
um, was a small and mighty group, she kept saying, right? And I'm like, that that feels, you know, very emblematic of, you know, the history of this conference being one where we have open questions about who has access to the space, mm-hmm. who feels like they, they, there's space for them in this space, um, and how we continue to really um, uh, need to be in right relationship with queer and trans folks of color, especially. Um, to to kind of continue to coalition build and ensure that all narratives are incorporated into this conference. And so I was really, really grateful that through that relationship with Greek, uh, that that was a piece of programming we were able to incorporate as well. Something I really liked about the tracks, I think for attendees, it makes it a lot easier to sort of curate your experience mm-hmm. to say either... I want to go to all of these workshops that are about rural experience, or I want to go to one workshop that's each of the tracks so that you get a large amount of content or something. It just makes it a lot easier for folks to decide of the 60-some workshops we have, you know, what do I want to go to? What do I want to prioritize? I think that's really important for us to recognize that sometimes the conference can be a little overwhelming in Mm -hmm. terms of content. You know, what do I want to go to? What do I want to learn? I think that's very valuable for us to experience and remember moving forward. And when you talk about like, you know, we had 60 workshops at this, at this conference, right? What that also highlights for me is just how brilliant (laughs) young people are. Absolutely. Right? Like this, this conference generally centers college aged young folks, right? Where where we've got folks from, you know, 18 to 25 is the largest segment of our audience. Right. And those same folks are the ones that are presenting a majority of the content at this conference. And all of it was brilliant, Mm -hmm. brilliant. And so we have to be looking at our young people to guide the future of this movement. Right. Like the folks that are going to pick up the reins in a few years already know. Already know. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're already sharing. We just have to listen. Mm-hmm. And to tie a, a couple of those pieces together, what, one other layer of the conference this year was that we really put more intention, more investment into a virtual track. Component. Mm-hmm. That was a, a track that ran concurrently with Saturday of the conference. And I think also the sessions themselves that were in person, uh, but it expands the pool of folks that we can reach to include folks who whose institutions perhaps couldn't send them to the conference and pay for their lodging and travel, which is, of course, um, one of the largest shares of the cost of attending. Um, and I, we're, we're secure in the knowledge, I think, that going forward, virtual components to this kind of programming are going to be expected, are going to need to continue to improve. Um, so, so what we learned last year and sort of being thrown in, um, having to add a virtual layer during the pandemic, which was our actual first technical pandemic conference, it was really informative. Mm. Um, I think it made the quality of the programming this year better. Um, we knew how to organize it better. So we, I think we really delivered on it. We certainly learned some things that I'm excited to put to use next year too. Yeah, I think I think the the piece there that like became very clear this weekend 
is that this pandemic has really warranted needing to reconceptualize these types of spaces. And I think that we are positioned, which feels very like daunting, but also really like pretty um, is that a lot of the other, you know, notable long-standing conferences didn't make it. And like maybe they'll come back or maybe there'll be new iterations of them, right? But most of our counterparts, you know, regionally based college conferences, even some of the large scale kind of broader based conferences, you know, are suffering. And not to say that we came unscathed, you know, like what does it mean that some of those conferences have hit their brick wall and may not rebound, may not? Um, you know, I think that's very frightening. And also I think it means some very, very, um, it's going to mean something to figure out like, what does it mean to hold space for our communities when we are, we are all interpersonally institution and institutionally shattered by kind of the ongoing impacts pandemic. So Mm -hmm. what does it mean to be in a position where you know, we were one of the only conferences that held space last year, held space this year, um, and did not move entirely virtually, and still committed to doing something. So, like, you know, I don't, I don't know where the end thought is there, but just, like, what does that mean for, you know, a whole national, international community of people who, are, who have lost certain spaces that offer a version of what we know mumbled? Like, that's stressful. Well, but exciting. I mean, there's 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 room to continue to reach new audiences, right? And and continue to do this work of convening queer and trans young people and building community, right? That I will probably talk about like, why this building is so important, mm-hmm. right? And I think that you know the the short answer, right, is that it it quite literally saves lives. It does. Mm-hmm. I felt very affirmed and also just like had a moment, right? Because we, we, you know, in addition to Skylar being very gracious with his time, he, was all, he also graciously signed the, the poster. And you had, Nick, you had, you know, shared us the, a picture of the signature on it. And I didn't look at it right. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that almost cosmically was on purpose. I happened to, I think, look at it later in a moment where I could actually comprehend the fact that in his little message on poster he had said you know thanks for creating life-saving space and i was like the fact that someone who has interacted with us for all of you know two hours gleaned that from this space right like you know heard about the conference had never been to the conference before heard about it through being contracted and hung out with us for two hours right was able to Glean from that that we are doing something that truly does impact folks' livelihoods and material needs, um, you know, is something that I think is just like is not is something that we we generally know, you know, as because we are in it and we are here and we were those students once upon a time. But to have this kind of person who's far removed and doing the work he's doing and is looked at as someone that is doing, you know, his own life-saving work, right, to get that kind of feedback, like, I don't think we've ever been told that before by an external person, and I was like, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. 
oh wow, like we're at, we are actually doing something here. Like I knew it and I can know that. Hear it from another person in that way. Like, oh shit. Like <laughs> okay. Like, yep. And I think it's it, it sometimes takes on an extra special meaning when it's someone who um you might independently respect right. admire for their work and, and think very similarly. Right. Them. Yep. So it, it, there was a there was a gut check that like, yeah, we we're on the right track. Yep. Well, and you know, I think it's really simple for us to kind of get in our feels when we get sometimes either feedback or or critique that we don't know what to do with, or just like any critique, right? Like it's very simple to take this work personally, whether it's planning this conference or being a student leader on campus, right? Like because it's so bound up in our ourselves, our literal selves, our personalities, our identities, who we are as people. So like it can it can feel very personal when you receive feedback commentary on how you're doing something mm-hmm. especially when you put in the, the volunteer labor that we all have volunteer labor that we all have let me emphasize that again to construct and curate the space that we have so i just yeah that one's going to stick with me for a while to kind of get that type of feedback because it's so simple to take just the the littlest critique about this that and the other thing about the space you've created, because there's a, it's a, it's always going to happen. It's always going to be a thing. Um, but that those are small potatoes in comparison to getting the type of feedback. Um, you know, whether it's Skylar or whether it's someone I didn't catch the name of, like interacting in the hallway, you know, that says like this is the coolest thing I've ever done, or thank you for putting this together, or you know, we come came from bumfuck nowhere, and there's nothing like this where we're at. So just like that, that all greatly outweighs any of the like little pragmatic errors or things that folks just Mm -hmm. aren't feeling so absolutely yeah and so earlier rb um sort of outed me for having cried a little bit (laughs) (laughs) and it was it was exactly that i was we were in a in a debrief meeting or a a sort of a a collaborative meeting with the the students who planned this year from ohio and indiana and the students who would be planning next year's conference in lexington and as we were just sort of having this conversation, I saw this one student's eyes just light up. I saw them turn to someone else that was seated next to them, one of their friends and, and, and classmates, and like with such unadulterated glee say, like, I'm so excited for this. And it like, I just that, you know, after a weekend of being, yeah. of being uh, working for 12 hour days and, um, all, and sort of the culmination of all the hard work that we had put in together. That fatigue i was just like primed and ready and it was the thing <laughs> it like the 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 dam had broken the town was flooded <laughs> but it was such a beautiful moment it reminded me like this is really like this is so much of what i do this work for is is to give people that kind of feeling that kind of validation that kind of purpose it was really special every year about two weeks before the conference starts I think to myself, what are we doing? Yes. <laughs> Why are we doing? Are we ready? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And just like, because you know, there's always that moment of panic before a large scale event. And then we have those interactions and we see that joy. And it answers that question. Why are we doing? It's all worth it. All of, you know, the, the stress that we may encounter, everything yes. is worth it to see the experience that the students and attendees get out of this conference. It's truly 
amazing. Now, I'm not going to say I don't want a paycheck eventually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, like, if you're listening to this, like, we are volunteering our labor yes. to reiterate what RB just said. So, uh, if you know any sugar daddies, send them our way. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> sugar daddy with a conference? <laughs> Coast Guardians may apply. Um, yeah, I, I'm having a, a thinking into an interaction I had with two students, and I'd never met these students before, um, but they attend my alma mater. And so that, that's very important to me, right? Because when I was at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, that's when I planned this conference. And like UMKC was a really great place. For me. And we built great relationships, you know, that were fractured at the time of bringing the conference back to that campus. Um, and so it took a lot of work. Like there were two things we were doing. We were doing a lot of work, planning the conference, and doing a lot of like institutional work to mend and rebuild relationship between students and administrators. Um, you know, and I've got administrators from that campus who are my very best friends or like pseudo parent types for me because that's what I needed at the time that I could contact anytime I need. Um, and so UMKC is a very important place to me. So, you know, I've kind of lost touch because there's been a lot of turnover and those folks that were there are no longer there. So it's a really rewarding moment interacting with two students who are currently there um, who are like student leaders on essentially this council that oversees the six LGBTQ student organizations that apparently now exist on the Um And when I was at UMKC a handful of years ago, um, uh, the council that those students are now on had just been voted into existence by the student government when I was And I think like thinking about kind of the multi-generational scaffolding of, of how this con only by way of this conference would I have been able to literally see the results of something that manifested and was, was a result of work that I had done at that conference is something that I don't think a lot of student leaders get the opportunity to see. It's what makes student leadership and student organizing sometimes unsatisfying and I think can contribute to burnout is that they do this work for the two to six years they're on a college campus. They pour all of themselves into doing uncompensated labor for a university that should be doing the shit that those students are doing, you know, on their own. And they leave either because they graduate or they call it quits and they stop out and they don't necessarily get to see the literal fruits of their labor. And there I was seeing some of mine and it only would have happened by way of me being part of this organization overseeing this conference where students from my alma mater are still coming and i think that's i think this is one i'm literally processing it as i'm naming it but like i want to see more of that like i want to see ways in which like students who have had relationship or connection with this conference or any of our programs or Know, have done their student organizing in the Midwest actually be able to see what comes out of the work that they did. So, so we could certainly talk for many more hours to the chagrin of Justin as editor about this <laughs> <laughs> this year's conference. Was there anything else that folks really have sticking to their head or heart about this year's conference that you want to add before we maybe pivot into? What's next? 
Well, in episode one, when you were talking with Abby and Dalila and Lou, one thing that stuck out to me was um, Abby was really excited for all the lesbian workshops. <laughs> and so my my angle on this is I was really excited for a Kirk and Spock fan fiction <laughs> workshop um, called Space Husbands. It was done by, I think, April Callis yeah. at a, an Ohio, a university here in Ohio, I think. And um, I was just, I'm a lifelong Trekkie, so that was really exciting for me um, to see, like, a, a, such a strong fandom of mine come into intersection with uh, a space that I hadn't had that kind of overlap with before. Yeah. So I, it oh. just, it, it, it showed to me or made me realize in a new way, like, how varied our community's interests are and how, how rich a base of content there is, how much you can learn from everybody in, in ways that you would not have even expected. Which I think is significant, right? Because, like, I live in a, what I would call a more rural area, or at least it's kind of a hub that, like, bridges mostly rural areas. And something that I think is complex about building community in spaces where there's less resources or less opportunity for connection is that, like, just sharing similar or, sh- or the same identities can't, is not, does not a relationship make, right? And I think we generally know that. But then it's, it gets trickier, too, in these kind of places of scarcity to then find those overlapping interests, right? Like, you know, I think about my partner who he just wants someone to go fishing with. And unfortunately, it's not me, right? So just like, how do you find folks in these spaces where driving force isn't just going to be, oh, you're both asexual or you're both trans? Like, that can be a place of connectivity. But like, if you don't have any shared interests, like if you're not both, what is the fandom called? Trekkies. Trekkies. Mm-hmm. If you're not both Trekkies, right, like, there's a missed opportunity to be able to connect on that level about something that you were emphatically interested in. So I, I think, too, like, seeing seeing that kind of content where, you know, it's not just about identity development or exploration. It's about this thing that April is really hype about, and i.e. so are you, mm-hmm. right? Like, you now, have, you now have someone that you can contact and nerd out about with who has several, like, points of connection about something that y'all are just big old nerds on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, so thinking about, you know, kind of the history of the conference, it was the 30th anniversary. It's almost as old as some of us, if not older. Um, you know, it has shifted and shaped and folded and molded, and now we are at a place in its timeline and legacy, contributing to some of that shaping and molding and direction, um, you know, thinking about what's next and what role Mumble Talk plays in the what's next of Midwest organizing, Midwest communities, you know, Midwest sexual liberation and gender justice, right? Like, what do you feel like um, Mumble Talk exemplifies, and then also maybe some of the additional work that we're doing with the Institute, how does it serve, you know, as a model and, and what, what might we see manifest in the next 30 years, um, you know, for building community, building knowledge, um, building relationships and connections, right? Like what, what are we positioned to see and do? In a, in a future of this conference and more Midwest work? That's the question. Because I'm really good. 
so I think that um, a key point here, right? We're, we're, we're talking about in, in, in what ways does mobile tech serve as a model right, for mm -hmm. organizing for the future, right? And what I want to highlight and maybe kick off this part of this conversation, right, is that this conference is founded by students for students, mm -hmm. right? And this type of convening is done within the community for the community, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we don't need institutional bureaucracy in order to bring this space together, right? Um, we need folks who are activated around bringing them, their peers together uh, to create life-saving space. We don't need some institution saying that you can't organize unless you meet these specific mm -hmm. steps and you have this liability waiver signed and <laughs> you commit to this amount of paperwork, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that doesn't help anything. No. And so, like, the way that this space survives is because there are people who are passionate within the community about bringing the community together. And that, I think, is a hugely important model for the future. One thing I think about is um, how we assess or even understand expertise in, in society writ large, mm -hmm. but certainly within the context of the conference. Um, a narrative that, that I've heard crop up in, the, in what I think is a righteous fight for science and the value <laughs> of science is maybe a, an, sometimes an overemphasis on the kind of expertise that people bring to the mm. table when they have certain credentials and an undervaluing of that kind of expertise when folks simply come from the community and have a lived experience. Here at the conference, these are college students who are coming in and bringing their knowledge, their experience, their activism, their circumstance, all of that context around their lives mm -hmm. and their interests and passions for doing the work. I think there's a lot to be said for community wisdom. And we have that in such rich abundance here. I think it makes the conference really unique, really valuable for folks. Um, if I can know, as a student in Michigan, for example, I'm not a student in Michigan, used to be, <laughs> um, what, what folks are doing in Minnesota, maybe in a similarly situated community or on a similarly situated campus, how can I think about the work that they did there and how might it apply in my instance? There's certainly a place for um, papers and professional conferences. Those are valuable, too. Um, and I think this is a this is a gap that we fill really well. Having that peer to peer knowledge mm, base, exactly, I think is very very important that people can see. You know, I can do this work too. Someone on this campus has developed this thing with similar resources that I have. Look what I can do on my campus or in my community, and that's really activating people. And I I do agree that's something that we that we bring to to this space that is very important. And it came up in the space this year. One of the keynote speakers, uh, Imani, right, was answering a question about um, disability justice work mm -hmm. and said, like, people are already doing this work. 
pay attention to what they're already doing mm-hmm. and then you can build on it. Right. And that's the resource sharing and the knowledge that, that this space provides and what future organizing I think should, should center around, right. Is, is not reinventing the wheel every year, but like pr- improving the process or just applying the process in, in, in different spaces. Um, I think I've shared this story probably with y'all, but I don't know if I've brought it up on the, on the show before, but when I was a grad student back at University of Kansas, I created you know, groups of students, a group of students to come to the 2015 conference. And it was a practice of mine, which I really encourage, but have slightly gotten out of, um, to do a debrief and unpack students. Because it is a lot, right? Especially yeah, you know, yeah. if you've never attended. And I remember being in that debrief space with my undergraduates from University of Kansas. And I emphasize that because it's a very complex in general, right? A lot of morality. And I had this, I had this student who said, you know, why can't every day be mumble talk? Right. And like, you know, this student had certain identities that were generally more privileged than even some folks, you know, in that in that cluster. And so even for that student to say, why can't every day be mumble talk? I think I think the backdrop to that is, you know, we are working towards an existence where, you know, you're surrounded by hundreds of LGBTQ folks instead of only having that one person you may be an acquaintance with in some small town that you don't really work. You know, having folks who are dreaming and scheming around liberatory practices and mutual aid projects and this, that, and the other thing to you know, activate and, and pull together LGBT folks into shared space, shared projects, shared work, right? Reclaiming power, building power, doing all of this, right? And it shouldn't be one, you know, it shouldn't be that you have to travel X amount of hours to experience this little small bite of, you know, this type of space. It should be every day. And I think that that for me has, since that moment where that student named that has been a bit of a guiding light to say, like, how do folks taste it one time by mumble, by way of mumble talk and then continue to grow that, right? Once you've had a taste of it, like, how do you continue to try to implement that into your own spaces? Because now, you know, you've had this little glimmer of what it means and what it feels like if every single waking moment you're just surrounded by queer and trans people. Like, it is a game changer. And I also am thinking about, too, during the Lunch and Learn session where we had about 100 folks come together to hear from Marie and Jade about, like, striving towards liberation, essentially, where at one point Marie had asked you know, for folks at college campuses, had they ever, ever had an educator of any kind be a trans woman of color? And not a single hand went up, right? And that was very notable and very, like, significant and speaks to how the type of educational space that Mumble Tech is and the type of knowledge building and the ways of knowing that we have and are also building at the same time, right, is going to be stark different than what is capable at institution. Knowing what I know as someone who works in higher education, and there's a reason that that is a reality. There's a reason that trans women of color are not in abundance and being the folks who are teaching things because they'd probably just be pigeonholed anyway. Um, and so I think knowing that we're also crafting this 
essentially alternative space that needs to be the model for education, period. Like, not just queer and trans education, not the LGBTQ minor that's not surviving trans. Like, this is the model that needs to be adopted in academia, period. Mm -hmm. So to figure out how to slowly wrap this up, in 30 years, right, what do you hope has manifested? What do you expect will exist? What is it going to look like in 30 years? What are we about to speak into existence today? I love how well this question ties into or connects with, aligns with this year's theme. Yes. Limitless queer activism of the future. When we were working on how we would sort of explain what the theme meant to the student planners, one word that kept coming up was, or one idea that kept coming up was allowing ourselves to dream and unlocking Mm -hmm. our imagination what could be. Um, So... So in 2052, obviously, we'll be in space on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> With so space ev- Everyone, please hop on your, on your nearest shuttlecraft and uh, meet us on, um, in the Hidden Lake. I don't remember the what it was called. Thank what? you. The Sea of Tranquility. <laughs> Clearly not spacey enough uh, for, for actual science. Um, I, I would love, uh, while I'm dreaming, I, I would love to see... The resurgence of of Emble Tech like programs around the country. I think that um, I, I don't think that it would be appropriate to say that a hiatus or discontinuation of these programs is any indication that there's not an interest in them. There's a lot of circumstance, uh, especially in the last couple of years, um, that that could sort of factor into that and help explain it. I would love to see more iterations of Embletech maybe multiple times a year in different places around the region um, in pockets that will that will make it more possible for students in small and rural communities to come um, so you're not paying airfare to travel from Duluth to Kansas City or to Wichita or to Lexington that's a pretty big expense already why don't we have these programs where people are when we can? I think seeing in the next, oh God, 30 years, that sounds like such a long time. Um, seeing like more, even more centering of our most marginalized groups within our community, seeing even more like uh, content around that, more knowledge, more, I guess, even like generational knowledge, seeing, um, I think it would be so cool if students who, are going to this conference now or have been to this conference like later are advisors and bring their students and they bring their students and they bring their students like how cool is that Uh would that be for the next 10 20 30 years in the future of this conference Mm -hmm. these attendees the the future advisors they can go on to consult at their in their own communities at their own institutions take what they've learned today and make their campuses and their communities better places for young queer and trans kids. Make them places that um, make young adults want to grow into old adults. Mm -hmm. What I'm thinking about right now is, is that part of me wants to say that I envision a future in 30 years where mobile tech isn't necessary. Mm -hmm. But I also think that it's always going to be necessary for the community building aspect. 
And as I'm sitting here saying this out loud, I'm also thinking that like, there's never cause to be complacent. We're seeing that in today's political environment where things that we thought were solid have been mm. struck down. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. All right. Check um, out episode two. <laughs> there we go. Uh, but I want us to be in a place, right, where we are flying to the moon in order to have these really complex, deep conversations and not necessarily be reacting to political attacks and attempts to score cheap points, Mm -hmm. right? But like having some complex conversations about continued improvement uh, for the material needs of queer and trans people, right? Like I want us to be in a place where we are debating theories about how to know get all queer and trans people housed get everybody housed right not to be debating about how to combat this slew of right-wing attacks on our communities Mm -hmm. or find out what the bail funds are so that when people are traveling to our conference they have any issues getting here because of arcane bigoted state laws based on where they're traveling through yeah, I don't want that to have to have that database. No. Mm. We don't need to be focused on survival. We want to be focused on thriving and mm. expanding and understanding so much more in more human terms. When I think about 30 years from now, I'm, like, forced to contend with, you know, my own mortality. But, like, when I think about 30 years from now, and that being probably a significant majority of our lifetimes, the literal four of us sitting here's lifetimes, right? Like, I want to feel immersed in community that I feel now. I don't want to lose that by nature of aging, which we've discussed in the show before, right? This, like, really complex reality for queer and trans elders, right? I don't want it to be a matter of you have to be connected to campus or or be a student leader to have access or immersion in community, in resources, in connectivity, in all of this, right? I want mm-hmm. to be in whatever bodily state of being I am, sitting around a table making a beaded bracelet, right? <laughs> I want to be somewhere comfortably sitting around reading whatever books in whatever format books exist at that point in time, um, chatting about big ideas and concepts related to whatever language exists for our communities at that time, right? I want to still feel like I have space and there's still invitation to contribute and have play a part in the big ideas and ways of knowing and, and knowledge creation that we, we have already talked about manifest at this conference with the brilliance of young folks um, and not exist in a, a culture or climate where our old folks are kind of lost in the ether, right? I think about Miss Major. I think about the names of elders we don't know. I think about the life um, prospects of trans folks, especially trans folks of color. And when I think about you know, 30 years from now and what it means for Midwest connectivity, community, relationships, knowledge, right? Wanting this more thrush and well-connected and less ageist, multi-generational scaffolding of folks who are continuing to just 
create and travel in whatever spacey aircrafts exist and um, just having some ease to being and being together in all of it. I don't know what the landscape looks like, but as far as the vibes and the feels, like I don't want to I don't want to be lost to the disparateness that can come from kind of the the fractures. So to actually wrap up, right? So next year we are headed to Lexington and we can talk about Lexington, Kentucky as a complexity of whether or not that's the Midwest and why that is in a future episode. Um, but very briefly in, in just a little snippet, let's give folks a little teaser of what is to come, right? So let's go with knowing what we know from this conference. What is, what is one thing you're hoping for or you are excited about for next year? I'm just excited to have more people (laughs) each, each year since the pandemic, we've slowly built up our attendance and I'm just excited to hopefully um, have a larger amount of attendees just to create more of that community, more of that space. As we're working with the, the team in Kentucky to, you know, lay the groundwork for this conference, right? We've done some of the logistical components and, and, you know, signed a rental contract for the space, right? But every time we work with the the folks on the ground in Kentucky, I I learn just a little bit more about the queer history mm-hmm. that's already there, mm-hmm. and I am so excited to personally learn even more of that history, mm-hmm. but for our community to learn that history. Mm-hmm. Also, horses <laughs> and bourbon. bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I've already really pitched this to the upcoming planning team, and I'm just I'm so eager to do some bridging between Midwest movement work and Southern mm. movement work. And I know there's going to be some significant overlap. I think there's going to be some significance to kind of resource sharing and saying, you know, what's what's pressing here based on the dynamic of the South versus the Midwest. What is some what is some crossover in ways that kind of each geographical region because borders are fake you know can merge and and support each other because i think in the grand scheme like the south and the midwest experience a lot this missile and erasure of course the midwest is our point of reference i'm really eager to figure out like what what kind of conversations can take place in that space that really haven't had um the same room um with being in a in a southern technically southern state um, so I'm really excited. I think you all, all, everything that you have said are things that I'm really looking forward to. So I, I won't repeat what you said, but one thing that that also I, I think deserves a little bit of attention is we haven't been to Kentucky before. Mm. You know, not every time that something or someone is a first necessarily is the most important fact about it, but I am excited by the fact that we and this group of student planners and advisors decided it was a priority to go somewhere that we have not been before. Not only was their bid high quality and not only did we select them for all of the reasons we would have selected any other host that we've selected, it meant that there are going to be students in Kentucky, there are going to be students in Tennessee, in Mississippi, in Alabama, maybe in Florida again, certainly in Texas. We know already that there's going to be a delegation Mm -hmm. coming from there. Um, that they haven't 
they haven't felt maybe paid attention to. They didn't even know that Embletech existed or that it was within reason for them to come. I felt really similarly when we went to Kansas. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think I think of Kansas the Midwest, certainly because of Embletech, but also because it just sort of fits very tidy in, in my idea of how that geographic chunk sort of pulls out <laughs> of America. <laughs> Using that graphic designer brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it can it certainly allow us to reach more students, maybe on an ongoing basis beyond just that one time, by introducing ourselves to them, saying, hi, we're actually where you live. <laughs> this is for you. Yeah, there, there's going to be so much possibility as we go to Kentucky and just riding off of the the things that we were able to build this year and more learning and lessons extracted from yet another planning re- planning year. So, you know, uh, I'm very eager about that. Right. Um, I know we're exhausted and I am glad that we were able to capture this in current time, right. Instead of waiting a week, um, we waited a day, right. Where everything is fresh. And I think this will really help us, know process and give ourselves some grace and um kudos to ourselves obviously this is not the full team this is just a fraction of who all have their um hands on this and played a role but um i just wanted to name that i appreciate y'all immensely um y'all are gems and this would not be possible without not only just the literal labor but just all of the reflection that we just shared um, and intentionality and, and heart that goes into this. So, so, so much. I love you all. Take the Last Bite is made possible by the volunteer labor of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Our larger work is sustained by the contributions of grassroots donors. If you would like to support the life-saving work of empowering, connecting, and educating Midwest queer and trans communities, please consider setting up a monthly or one-time donation at sgbinstitute.org backslash giving or hitting that green donate button on our website's homepage. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, Nick, Danielle, and Michelle for all of your support with editing, promotion, transcripts, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick. <laughs>